This is Wednesday's Women, hosted by Caitlin and Taylor. We invite you to join us in a candid conversation about the roles of women in political organizing and beyond, as we celebrate the centennial celebration of the 19th Amendment. We hope that you find this episode educational, entertaining, and the women we discuss inspiring. If you like what you hear, subscribe and share. Yo, 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 welcome back to another episode of Wednesday's Women. That's the best intro you're going to get out of me today. I was just talking to Taylor about how do you do an intro that's respectable, and I have run out of ideas, so yo, yo, yo. Um, today, we are going to be talking about Gertrude Emily Hicks Bastille, uh, Mazel. We've been talking about how to pronounce her name. We're going to go with Mazel for her last name, so if it's wrong, we apologize profusely. We did look up how to pronounce it before we started filming, um, but it apparently isn't a common issue people have because there were no suggestions. It's just a problem. It's fine. All right, so we're going to just jump right in. So Gertrude Emily Hicks Bastille Mazel was born on July 3rd, 1855 in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. We got another person from PA. Um, she was born to Charles and Emily Bastille, a prominent Philadelphia family, which is important to note because that helps set up um, how she was able to accomplish a lot. You have to recognize her privilege. Um, her great-grandfather, Cyrus Bastille, opened his own bakery in Philly after serving as a baker for the troops fighting the War of Independence. Um, her family also included several abolitionists who helped run the Underground Railroad, and from this lineage, she inherited both status and an activist tradition, which is really interesting considering she was a person of color. Yes. Um, she attended public school in Philly and eventually the Institute for Colored Youth and the Robert Vaugh uh, Grammar School which is really interesting that she was given those opportunities since it was really hard for women to be educated at the time, especially someone who was um, colored. Upon graduation, she delivered the class oration entitled Influence. Um, and she was so impressive because of how she was able to come across with this speech. Um, she impressed African method. Wow, I can't talk. I'm sorry, I'm, my phone's ringing. Um, she impressed African Methodist Episcopal. Oh, I can't talk today. We're going to be just flying through this, guys. Bishop Henry McNeil Turner, who edit, was the editor of the denomination's newspaper, the Christian Recorder was which, what was it was called, that he published the oration there and invited her to contribute poetry and essays to the newspaper. So already off the bat, she was given great opportunities. And I think it's important to note, um, she does later become a journalism. This is sort of her entry into the field. Mm -hmm. But just this idea that her oration was so moving um, is very similar to we discussed Sojourner Truth last week and how she had um, a lot of charisma and a great presence. So I just think it's important to see both these women displaying such great impressive skills. Yeah, even though they were very different, which we're going to talk about later on. Um, at the same time, she did make, she maintained a career in journalism. Oh, did I just skip? Oh, I skipped. I'm sorry. So for seven years in the 1870s, she taught at public schools in New Jersey, Pennsylvania, and Kentucky. During that time, she also maintained a career in journalism. 
Um, she was a contributor to the Philadelphia Press, Philadelphia Independent, and Philadelphia Echo on issues related to African-American women. Um, she eventually contributed to the New York Age, the Indianapolis World, as well as the AME Church Review. I looked all over the internet and scoured to try to find some of her um, articles that she wrote herself or co-wrote, and I could not find anything. So yeah, there isn't, um, there's a lot of talk about where she worked, but not a lot of talk about what she did when she worked there. Yeah. I do just think it's so impressive that she was a working woman. She had a hustle and a side hustle and uh, on the weekend and on holidays hustle and like she worked nonstop in the beginning. Nonstop. <laughs> Sorry, I've been listening to Hamilton on repeat. Uh, she quickly made a name for herself, becoming the highest paid black newspaper woman of the late 18th century, earning $500 a year, which what did we say? We keep going back to the math we did that one episode. Yes. So Anthony was fined $110. It equated to roughly $3,500 in today's money. So we'll just multiply that by five. So you're looking at like $15,000 a year, roughly. Um, and at that time, it was a time when female journalists were rare, much less somebody of color, which is what we already discussed. So that's why it was so um, inspiring that she was able to do this at, you know, that time period. In 1883, she married Nathaniel F. Mosel, a prominent Philadelphia physician. The couple had two children together. And during this time, um, she took a brief hiatus from her journalism career, which was very common for women. It's common for women even now. Um, he was the first African-American graduate of the, his, the University of Pennsylvania School of Medicine in 1882, which is really interesting because then you see that not only was she breaking barriers, but so was he. Um, so they were like a really big power couple. In addition to her career in journalism, she was involved in social welfare activities, including her role as a charity fund director for the Frederick Douglass Hospital in Philadelphia, which um, her husband helped create that hospital, which she got interested in helping them. He was also the chief of staff and the medical director. In 1895, she led a successful fundraiser drive for this hospital, and they were able to collect more than $30,000 for construction on the main building, which is just crazy. And that $30,000 is 1800s money, not like I didn't adjust it. I don't ever adjust the amounts. I figure we can do it here on the show if it's that important. Um, I can't mentally adjust 30,000, but it would be a lot. Yes. Um, she also founded the Bastille Family Association and organized the National Afro-American Council's branch in Philadelphia, which that organization, that council is still existing today. Uh, Gertrude, she then died in January 21st, 1948 in Philadelphia at 92 years old. So just like, um, Sojourner Truth, they lived to a very old age, like, given the time period. Yeah, I mean, obviously in the 1800s, you weren't, like, dying in your 20s, but not everyone had the same life expectancy that we have now. So now, I think the life expectancy for Americans is, like, in their 70s. Women is 76, I think. Okay. Mid-70s. Yeah. So, um, back then you were probably more like 50s, 60s ish. So again, you're not dying young, young, but you're not 
living the same lengthy life. And even 92 for today is very good. Something I realized yesterday, I was looking at, uh, I got into an internet spiral about the monarch of England, monarchy of England, and I didn't realize that the queen mother lived to be 102. So she died in 2003, I want to say. And it's just crazy to me that literally um, the queen, the queen Elizabeth II is how old she is and that her mom lived into 2003. Like that just is crazy to me. That is wild. Just long life is like exciting, but also daunting. Like I'm bored now and I'm 21 years old. What am I going to do for 60 more years? Bored. I'm just bored. (laughs) quarantine mind it's fine yeah it really is once quarantine's lifted it probably won't be so bad but like right now in this present moment I'm bored you need to get animal crossing no (laughs) um one thing to note is that she she passed in um the Frederick Douglass Memorial Hospital that she helped build so um just that this hospital played a large part in her life for her entire, almost her entire life. Her husband and her began campaigning for it, and then he worked there, and then eventually she passes in that hospital. So we talk about her career as a journalist, and it's very impressive, well marked with accomplishments and recognitions, and it's also the main mode she used to champion for women's rights. So um, similar to Anthony and Truth and Bone, she didn't focus just on the suffragette movement. She focused on a variety of women's rights, and she used her journalism platform to boost these announcements and make people aware of what was happening. Um, In addition to being an avid avid suffragette, Gertrude Busto-Mosel held the rare position of an influential journalist and was able to use her position as a writer for a prominent African-American newspaper to give voice to the ideas of other Black women who advocated for suffrage. And this is important, and she often said that um, African-American newspapers had a slightly more important job in that they were the voice of the community, whereas you're traditionally newspaper that was one run by a white man didn't have that same importance you know um people didn't feel like they needed the new york times to lift their voice they just read the news from it where she was saying because african americans are already facing this uphill battle we need to be lifting their voices and elevating them to the same level that you know the new york times and such were Um, She did take the brief absence, like we discussed, before, um, or not before, after childbirth. When she returned, Mazel wrote a woman's column in T. Thomas Fortune's newspaper, The New York Freeman, which was published long after um, her death. I believe it still may be published today, just under a different name. I... I think you're right, because I was looking into that when I was looking into the different things she published for the New York Freeman, and I feel like that came up, so I think you're right. Um, but her first article, titled 
Women's Suffrage was published in 1885 and encouraged women to read the history and other articles on women's rights and why we're fighting for them now, why this is such a big movement, why you're seeing ladies march through the street in white, um, and really highlight sort of, um, I guess now you would call it fake news, but any sort of smear campaigns that would run against the suffragettes of like, oh, they don't want people to have kids. She would say, no, like I had children, I'm still campaigning. Um, this first article and many that followed called upon women to get involved in working towards the success of the suffragette movement and encouraged them to check out local campaigns, listed offices they could get in touch with, and so on and so forth. Um, she also encouraged women to get involved in journalism through these efforts as well. So throughout her career, Mazel encouraged the growth of Black newspapers and suggested that the African-American press had a special mission. And through this, they also had a special mission of uplifting Black women's voices, not just Black men's. Um, she suggested that this could be achieved through a more extensive national network of news dealers, agents, and newsboys who sold the papers. So newsboys um, weren't always just some kid in the neighborhood volunteering. They were often, um, during this time, you know, more similar to like a union almost, where a group of people who had this job, um, very, very well outlined in the musical Newsies, <laughs> if you are interested on the history of Newsboys. Um, wow, that's such a good play. It really, is it a play, not a musical? Yeah, it's a musical. It's a musical, not a play. I thought there was musical pieces, but I was like, maybe there's not. <laughs> oh, no. It's very, it's very musical. Um, so, like I said, Mazel was concerned with attracting women to the field journalism. And in 1886, she wrote several articles encouraging women to start their own journalism careers. And so she offered the opportunity for women to submit articles of their own. And that if they felt comfortable, they could mail these articles to her house and she would ensure they were submitted. And I mean, I think that is so nice. That was so nice of her to be like, to give them that route because she recognized that they could send them in, but people might have been demeaning of them because they weren't journalists themselves yet. And I also think it's important to note, like we think of this now and we're like, oh, okay. Like they weren't emailing them to her. Like these were handwritten handwritten letters that she would then have to transcribe onto a typewriter, submit to her editor. Like this was a process. This wasn't like if you email Caitlin and I something and you're like, oh, can you read this on the next episode? Like that is so much easier uh, than like, send me your letters and I will submit them. Um, because that was like a big thing back then, you know, if you were if you had charisma and you had a great persona, but you didn't have the funds, like you were going to have a harder time getting your work published. And so she worked really hard to sort of lessen these hindrances. So you can sort of see that she already knows she has a privilege that many other women never receive. Um, 
1889, she left the age and became the woman's editor of the Indianapolis World and worked there from 1891 to 1892. Um, so she did tend to move papers, which is impressive back then that you could up and leave one paper and then continue to get a job somewhere else as a woman of color. Um, her success in the field of journalism led her to publish two books, the work of Afro-American women in 1894 and Little Danzy's One Day at Sabbath School in 1902. Um, the work of Afro-American women is her most prominent publication and it looked into the future projecting women's roles in the 20th century, particularly, particularly in the areas of suffrage, journalism, and higher education. So, like I said, she was involved in more than just suffrage, but suffrage was a very prominent aspect of the women's movement at that time. And I mean, I think a lot of the women we've discussed so far have that same um, trait where they're not only suffragettes, as nobody is just one thing, but it, it just goes to show that most of them were advocates for a lot of things, including her. Mazel mm -hmm. favored the constitutional amendment route, um, much like Anthony and Katie Stanton over the state-by-state -state method, which was favored and suggested by Lucy Stone. So the difference was kind of you get a constitutional amendment, such as the 19th Amendment, that says women have the right to vote. Or the state-by-state -state method is Pennsylvania says women can vote, Virginia says women can't, Maine says they can. You sort of campaign every state. Um, which state is sometimes easier to get through because there are fewer requirements, but it's often not as effective. She was also a vocal and unequivocal supporter of women's suffrage and denounced the myth that women fighting for the vote would remain unmarried. Um, so three of the four women we have discussed thus far did marry did um, have children, did continue to live this sort of domestic life in conjunction to their work as a suffragette. So this was a common idea that, you know, it was just spinsters who were unhappy with that. They didn't have influence because they didn't have men in their lives. And a lot of it was a struggle often for these women to say no that's not the case like I have two children at home I have six kids like we are just being inclusive of these members and saying oh you have to wait until eight o'clock to meet we'll wait until eight o'clock to meet um she notably said give women more power in the government offices if the desire is for peace and prosperity um, so just the idea that you need, at some point with just men, you're going to plateau because you're not having full representation. So if you want to continue to grow, include women in your discussions. So she unfortunately was not as, I don't want to say she wasn't, like she almost wasn't as famous as suffragettes like Anthony and Truth, um, Katie Stanton. So there isn't as much information on her as there is on other suffragettes. So it's very similar to the issue we encountered with Marietta Bones, where if you're not the name of the movement, there's limited information. 
but we do know she worked very hard throughout her career to promote women's suffrage and to promote women's rights. So she'll always have a place here. Yes, absolutely. We ready for discussion questions? Yes. Okay. So first discussion question. Compare and contrast Mazel and Truth. Both great charismatic speakers, but like you think, Taylor, they have very different upbringings. I can't speak. <laughs> it's all right. So yes, they did. Um, were both noted as charismatic, had great personas, had a lot of personality when they spoke and commandeered the stage. Um, Truth, I'm going to say, actually had a harder time accomplishing what she accomplished because not saying that Mazel didn't work for what she achieved and didn't struggle in some aspects because she certainly did as a woman of color in the 1800s but she did not struggle in the same way that a recently freed slave who spoke accented English would. So Mazel does have a little bit of privilege and she acknowledges this privilege when she asks women, you know, send your articles to me and I'll make sure they get out there. I know this is a hindrance to some. Um, so I do think truth may have actually achieved a little bit more had she been given Mazel's upbringing. Yeah, I completely agree. And I think that goes, um, you posted actually something on Facebook I really liked about equity and equality um, mm -hmm. and about how you always see on like in classrooms and things that tiered system where you have the boxes or the hill or whatever. Um, they're, they're what? I think they're at a baseball game and it's like the fence is sloped, like yeah. the fence coming down a hill so if you give one student if you give everyone one box and you have a kid who can see over it a kid who can barely see over it and a kid who can't see over it you gave them all the same thing but you didn't you're not improving the situation right and I think that's a really good point to make and I think it's really important to acknowledge differences like that um, because, like you said, in Truth's case, she had to overcome a lot more and to be able to accomplish what she did. And I just think it's really important as a society that we acknowledge those differences. Because we, we always fall, in, especially in America, we fall into this idea of achievement ideology where you need to pull yourself up by your bootstraps and everybody has the same ability to get to become anything they want so long as they try hard enough but that really takes away from an idea of yeah technically we all have an ability to get there but it's going to be a lot harder for some and it's really not fair to not acknowledge that yeah i do think um and sometimes it's hard for privilege to be acknowledged because people feel like, you know, I don't have privilege because I struggled with this. Um, but it doesn't, privilege doesn't mean you didn't struggle. I mean, Mazel struggled to get her voice out there. She was a woman of color in a time where women of color weren't always accepted in spaces. She just didn't struggle in the same ways. So I think that's important to note. Um, so our second question, 
do you think Mosul would be satisfied with the current amount of representation in the media? So with this, um, representation just means, you know, making sure that everyone can find a role model in anything they look for. So the media essentially translates to movies, TVs, Broadway shows, journalists, um, any of that. I would really. say it's getting better. Um, my thing is, is that while it's becoming better, there is now, I've recognized a, I don't know how to describe it, perspective on it by some isn't good. So by being more inclusive of all types of people, um, especially Caucasian people are very, uh, some people can be very, I don't want to say offended, but like they see that they, they aren't seeing the same, always being 100% white people in the mm -hmm. media used to be. And so now people that, some people are recognizing a change, that there is a change happening and there isn't this perspective that it's always good, even though it is. So I think she would be glad that it's becoming more inclusive, but I think she would be upset that it's not being always um, appreciated. And I think she would be upset that sometimes people are included but it's, they're being stereotyped is another big issue. You'll see more people of color, more people of different sexualities and different experiences being pr presented, but they're not being presented as people. They're being presented as labels. Yeah, and it's sort of the idea of tokenizing your characters, you know, oh, it's a diverse show because we have this one gay character who has two lines in one episode and that's diversity. Like, it's, it's really not. <laughs> like, um, and it's also, I think she would be impressed, but I think she would be disappointed with some aspects of our media. So this idea that we cast actors and actresses who are not a part of a minority or group into this role so, um, you know, casting CIS gendered people in trans roles isn't, isn't really diversity because even though the cast of the show is diverse, your actor pool is not. Yes. Um, so I think she would have an issue with things like that. I also think recently it's been coming out. Um, so Caitlin and I are big followers of Bon Appetit's Gourmet Makes. And Bon Appetit has recently been in some issues, really Condé Nast, the whole parent company, of just... Before we get into that, we should probably say what Bon Appetit is. So Bon Appetit, for those that don't know, is it started out as a magazine company for cooking, and then they branched into different media. They have a YouTube channel. Um, Taylor and I specifically follow, we follow all of Bon Appetit, but we like um, Gourmet Makes, which is the part of the show on YouTube where they turn, they try to make homemade versions of your favorite commercial foods, but make it also gourmet. So just for perspective, that's what this is. Yes. And Condé Nast, the parent company, um, is the parent company of several magazines. So I think they run Vogue. I think they run Allure. Um, right. I just don't know. But they run several big name magazines and it has recently come out that 
Um, bon Appetit specifically, the sort of food oriented, was asking workers who were work people of color were asking them to come in when white workers were filming so that they could stand and do things in the background and make it look like it was this diverse working environment and say, oh, look, we have a lot of diversity in our kitchen. But these workers who were called in and asked to be in these videos were not receiving pay for this. They were just contracted. The white workers who were also contracted were receiving large pays, is my understanding. They were receiving large sums of money for each video they produced. So it's still this idea of equality, but not equity. Like, yes, they're allowed into the workforce, but they're not given equitable treatment. So I think that would be a big issue. And I think now with a lot of these magazines being called out in these newspapers saying, you know, um, a couple of weeks ago, the Pittsburgh Post-Gazette got itself in trouble for trying to silence its workers, not through their articles, but through their personal social media. They would then be removed from articles, um, depending on their posts. And that's, of course, not okay. And I think that is something she would really take an issue with because being able to express an unpopular opinion at the time was so crucial to her. So a lot of people didn't agree with the women's suffrage movement and didn't think women should be given the right to vote, but she was. And some people, you know, and that's, I think, important is that you go up against these, um, these injustices, and, but you don't stop once things are addressed. So like, even though this is like, for example, we're talking right now about inclusivity in media, even though that's been addressed and people are trying to get better at it, we don't just stop talking about it. Just like we don't stop talking about women's suffrage. Have you seen Caitlin Bennett's posts? She does not think women should have the right to vote. You know, that, those are the type, you know, that's why you can never really stop advocating for things because if you do, there's always that potential to slip back. Unpopular opinion, I actually don't think Caitlin Bennett believes that because Caitlin Bennett vote. And I feel like if you genuinely believe that women shouldn't vote, you as a woman wouldn't vote. Possible. We also talked, that reminds me a lot of um, Lived in Clarion, the suffragette we just talked about. Yeah, it reminds me of Bones because she was all originally very positive towards suffrage and then whenever she had personal stuff happen, that made her want to contrast the, that opinion of her friends, she started to be an anti-suffragette. So it kind of reminded me of that. And I think even then we talked about, you know, she would say things that would garner headlines. Mm -hmm. You know, she didn't just come out and say, oh, I have, an if I have an issue not with the suffrage movement, just with this specific suffrage group for how they're managing things. She said that suffrage is stupid, women shouldn't get it to garner a following to oppose Anthony with. So I do think that's, it shouldn't ever be said that women should not have the right to vote. And I agree that that's despicable, but I genuinely don't believe she believes that. And I think that makes it that much worse because that is a very, you know, women shouldn't have the right to vote, but I'm going to go vote as a white woman who went to college and you know, those are the privileges you have. Yeah. So, you know, 
black women didn't get the right to vote until 1965 everywhere and Native Americans didn't get the right to vote for a long time. There were groups and classes who were excluded. So that is like a huge issue. But, um, and the final one, do you think Mosul would have favored states regulating their voting practices or having federal legislation regulate voting practices? And with this, um, voting practices meaning, can you register to vote online? Can you apply for a mail-in ballot without needing a reason? Um, so I believe all the states have absentee ballots at this point where you can say, oh, you know, um, I have a disability, I don't leave the house, I need something mailed to me. I'm at school from this time to this time, I need something mailed to my school address. Some states offer vote by mail ballots where you don't even tell them why you want it. You're just like, oh, I don't want to put pants on on Tuesday. Can you please send me one? And they're like, yeah, I guess. Um, so it does vary state by state. And so as someone who leads an initiative on a college campus to register students to vote, you often run into the issue where we say broadly, oh, go to this website to register online. And then a student from Texas or from another state can't register online because it's not allowed in their state. Um, so the question here is really just asking, should there be federal regulation regarding online registration, vote by mail, or would she favor what we have now where the states set everything? I personally think she would prefer the federal. And I mean, I prefer the federal too, because of the fact that I think it just makes more sense wise that everything is the same. I think that everybody, um, it doesn't make any sense to me that different states have different rules, you know, as a country, if we're going to be united and we're supposed to be abiding, like, equality, you know, it just doesn't make sense to me that some people would have to make, like, you, like, we were talking about, like, a wet signature versus being able to, um, register online. Like, I just, it just doesn't make sense to me. Yeah. Um to agree I feel like if we only voted state elections I could see the state setting their own rules um, because we do vote in federal elections and therefore everyone should have the same opportunity to vote in a federal election um, it is significantly easier for me to vote in a federal election than people in other states who don't have a vote by mail option who don't have an online registration option and there are states where it's easier to vote than Pennsylvania. Some states have vote early dates where you can walk into the pool, you know, a week ahead of time. And this sort of spreads out the number of people there so you're not waiting in these excessively long lines. Um, and I think just based on her work for a constitutional amendment and not a state-by-state -state method, you know, some of, our, some of the suffragettes we discuss and will discuss in future episodes had a state-by-state initiative and they would lobby a certain state. Um, Marietta Bones was one of them. She lobbied very heavily for North Dakota to agree. Um, but Mazel didn't. She didn't approach states. She just said, we need this. The federal government needs to make this an amendment and move forward. So I do feel um, she would favor federal re regulation regarding voting practices. So fun. Voting. 
That being said, if you are not registered or unsure of your registration status, you can go to votes411.org, which will provide the ability to check across states. If you live in Pennsylvania, you can go to votespa.org, which only checks your Pennsylvania registration status. Um, it'll let you know your polling location so that closer to the election, you can check and see if your location is available. Um, I know in the primary, they recently changed some things, closed some polling locations to sort of prevent the spread of COVID-19. Um, so I recommend you check your registration. And if you're not registered, I recommend, again, post 411 to see how you have to register in your state. So you may be able to register online. Pennsylvania, you can use Votes PA. You may have to submit a wet signature. And there are groups out there who can help you with that and Vote 411 has those resources to get you hooked up with one of those groups. All right, well, that was a really good episode. And also, since we kind of ended early, I do want to just say, because of everything happening with COVID, um, I really recommend everybody to be looking at their Department of Health's um, safety information and guidelines, because we just want everyone to be safe and be able to vote in person if they would like to and not feel in danger in November. Um, who are we talking about next week? Oh, and it's Tree! Ah! Next week, our good friend Tree will be on as a guest. Um, so when we started this podcast, we immediately texted him and said, who's your favorite suffragette? And he told us his favorite was Shirley Chisholm. Um, she was also referred to as Fighting Shirley. She was not alive during Anthony's time. So she did not fight for suffrage like Anthony and Katie Stanton, like alongside them, not like alongside them. She did though fight for suffrage early on in her life as not everywhere were African-Americans allowed to vote, African-American women. So um, she was still a suffragette just much later than we often think of the movement lasting. She was also the first woman to run for president, I believe, like on a serious ticket to get, um, she did not receive the nomination, but she was there through the primary, and she was the first African-American woman elected to Congress. So we will be discussing her alongside Tree next week. We encourage you to join us. Okay, well, I'm super excited, and I hope you guys all have a good rest of your week, and we'll see you next week. Thanks for tuning in. How do I stop the recording? This has been Wednesday's Women, sponsored by the Clarion University CU Engaged Coalition. The thoughts and ideas presented in this podcast are meant to be for entertainment purposes first and foremost, and we do not claim to be experts in any field. As always, thank you for listening, and make sure that you go out and register to vote.